1: He has written a new memo. He, of course, is co-founder of Oaktree Capital and uh, is the biggest distressed debt fund in the world. And uh, he joins us here in our 1130s studios. And uh, Howard, thank you so much for being here. You just wrote a new memo, the seven worst words in the world. What are they?
2: For an investor, too much money chasing too few deals.
1: And we're there right now.
2: Well, I think that we're, you know, life in the investment world is not black or white, as although many people try to say that. Uh, the, the environment is not the worst for investing anyone has ever seen. It's also far from the best. Uh, and if you draw a dividing line down the middle, I would say we're in the vicinity of too much money chasing too few deals.
0: Howard Marks, you are the author of Mastering the Market Cycle, Getting the Odds on Your Side... And that caused me also to reread your, uh, I guess we can, can we call it a famous memo about yes, uh, the race, to, can we call it the, the race to the bottom that basically called uh, the collapse in stocks and financial assets. You say now that we're closer to what, 2006? Does that kind of ring a bell? Is that what echoes in your mind when you look at current conditions?
2: I think it's fair to say, uh, you know, conditions are not as bad even as 2006. Uh, The banks are not as heavily levered as they were. Uh, There is no analog in the investment world today to the subprime mortgages uh, in their um, magnitude and fallaciousness. Uh, We don't have so many levered entities out there waiting to melt down. Uh, But what we do have is uh, a lot of money chasing not too many deals. That causes the prices to be bid up which produces lower prospective returns and greater risk.
1: Howard, when you say that there's not a direct analog, I think about some of the ways that this time is different than in 2005, 2006. And one of them is the flood of cash into direct lending funds and direct lending firms and away from the big banks. Uh, You had a quote referencing this. What the wise man does in the beginning, the fool does in the end. How do you see this ending?
2: Well, if if, uh, too much money is the seven worst words in the world, uh, what the wise man does in the beginning, the fool does in the end, is the most important single investment adage. Every trend which gets recognized in the early days by the intelligent few and profited from, when those profits become visible, everybody else wants to jump on the bandwagon too, even though prices may now be, be higher than they should be. And when everybody jumps in at the end, uh, that's a little on the late side.
1: So I guess that my question is, where are we with that? And what's gonna be the consequence? Well,
2: direct lending is 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 one of the areas that has been very popular. Popular, popularity is the enemy of the investor who wants to make a lot of money. Obviously, if you buy things or do things that are extremely popular, you, should, you'll, you, you're, you shouldn't expect to be getting a bargain. A lot of money has flooded into direct lending. I say in the memo, That in the last five years, there have been about 320 new uh, direct lending funds, of which 85 were first-time funds, as compared to the previous uh, five years, in which there were about 80 direct lending funds, of which 17 were first-time funds. So obviously, a lot more funds, a lot more money, a lot more rookies uh, doing their first uh, direct lending fund. Those are not the elements that make for great results. A
0: lot of debt outstanding right now. What's your call
2: on distressed debt? Well, at the present time, the, uh, you know the the uh, the distressed debt business is uh, uh, pretty snoozy. Uh, in this kind of environment, the with technical definition. Technical definition. In this kind of environment, with uh, with a very strong economy and a very accommodating capital market, you're unlikely to get much distress. And the companies that get into trouble are uh, are likely to deserve it. Now. We believe and hope that the large amount of lending and perhaps less cautious lending which is taking place today may result when the economy weakens in a cascade of distressed debt and and we hope to be busy. Uh, Right now, uh, we're pretty much working on old deals, much more than new.
1: When you say you hope to be busy, does that mean that you're putting aside a lot of cash to swoop in, should there be more distress?
2: We organized a standby fund for distressed debt investing uh, in 2015, $8.5 billion, uh, that's our second largest fund in history, I think probably the second largest fund in the history of the sector. And we have done very little with that so far. It's it's largely just sitting on the shelf in reserve. But, you know, you have to pre-raise your money in our business. Nobody goes in at the bottom.
1: Well, but do but investors push back then? Do they say, all right, we were hoping to swoop in. It hasn't happened. Forget it
2: our investors i believe are very patient uh, they we don't make claims for being able to time this stuff and so uh, and 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 i think the investors realize that it's desirable to have a commitment for distressed debt a commitment to oak tree for that moment but we don't claim to know when it'll come uh, you know they haven't put up the money yet it's just commitments we haven't charged any fees so, uh, I think our investors uh,
0: will be happy to be patient. Do you see investors currently playing the game a hot potato?
2: I think, well, you know, in in uh, in private equity, uh, we still see uh, the 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 trend toward uh, what the British call past the parcel, and you call, Hot potato you know you make an investment it does well it appreciates uh, maybe the fund that made the investment is coming to the end of its life uh, maybe the managers would like to realize their ca- carried interest in the profits so they sell it onward to some other fund which is early in its investment life and wants to start putting money to work I think that's the technical definition of hot potato.
1: (laughs) Uh, Throughout your memo, you were saying that in this environment, you're not saying that there is a bond bubble or that we're headed toward an imminent and catastrophic crash by any means, but just saying that in this period of elevated demand and incredible liquidity, people have to lower their returns expectations and be cautious. And I'm just wondering, from your perspective, we've talked about this before, returns going forward. Has Has your view on that changed at all?
2: Uh, Exactly, Lisa. Um, I mean, you know, debt today offers modest returns. Interest rates are still close to the lowest in history. The yield spreads above those base rates are not that high. They've come down as demand has has picked up. Um, So, you know, returns, while sounding generous compared to other markets, Are still low in the context of history Um, and uh, so I don't think people should be uh, that excited about the prospective returns and as you say I think the most important thing is to exercise caution
1: so what returns are feasible to
2: expect it depends on uh, the asset class Uh, high-yield bonds pay about six percent not a king's ransom but but better than treasuries. Uh, direct lending might be able to produce returns in the high single digits if it's not levered. Um, and and that sounds even better. Of course, you give up your liquidity, you get that. You, you uh, perhaps lend to uh, less well-tested companies and you enjoy less diversification. So you pay a price uh, for the uh, excess returns, but you know, um, the old Jim Morrison song, been down so long, looks like up to me. I think that's how people feel today, about 8 or
0: 9%. The uh, U.S. Uh, 30-year Treasury has uh, reached its highest level in yield since 2014. You speak about three things when you look at investing, recent history, human emotion, and asset pricing. We talked a little bit about recent history. Tell us about human emotion and asset pricing.
2: You know, Pim, one of the best things about the market today in general is that we do not see a prevalence of euphoria. Uh, The people in the media, we don't hear them saying, oh, this is your last best chance to get in on the market before it goes to the moon. The book Dow 36,000 has not been reissued. That's all good. We want to see level-headedness. What the challenge is, is that even people... Even though people aren't thinking bullish, they're acting bullish. People are dropping their caution to move out the risk curve, to take on riskier assets in the hope that they can provide decent returns in a low return world. And it is their behavior that affects the condition of the market. And that's why we're calling for caution.
1: I'm wondering, since your firm does so much on-the-ground research of companies, you have an incredible view into the U.S. economy. And I'm wondering, do you think that people are overly confident in its strength right now?
2: I think when you, when you say its strength rate now is great. I mean, the economy is very strong. Uh, the question is, is it sustainable? Is, is the performance of 2018 a sign of a future trend, or is it a highly stimulated result of the tax bill, in which case favorable comparisons will become differ, difficult? Uh, you know, I always say that doctors rarely give shots of adrenaline to healthy patients. Uh, will the tax bill produce overstimulation of the economy, necessitating the Fed increasing rates further in order to prevent inflation, and will that have a negative effect on economic growth? Uh, I have a very strongly held view, and that
0: is we'll see. As, As the author of Mastering the Market Cycle, does the popularity and interest in Bitcoin and marijuana-related stocks ring a bell? You know,
2: it does, Pim, and, and I wrote a memo in July of uh, 17, mentioned Bitcoin, got a lot of attention for that. I, I don't wanna inveigh against Bitcoin or against pot stocks, but the, it, what I wanna point out is that the ability to have an asset like Bitcoin and other coins and have Bitcoin go up 19x last year should put people on notice that this is a climate in which speculative behavior is taking place. It is that, that these kinds of phenomena, like you mentioned, do not occur in cautious, skeptical, disciplined, risk-averse markets. And you know, the best, the biggest, the easiest money in the investment business is to buy when people are skeptical, disciplined, risk-averse, and even terrified. Nobody would say that's today.
0: Well done. Thank you very much for being with us. A pleasure. Howard Marks, he is the co-chairman of Oak Tree Capital. He is the author of the new book, Mastering the Market Cycle, Getting the Odds on Your Side. The topic now is trade, and our guest is Robert Lawrence. He is the Albert Williams Professor of Trade and Investment at the John F. Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University. He is also a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics, and he previously served as a member of the Council of Economic Advisors under President Bill Clinton. Robert Lawrence, thank you very much for being with us. Will this new trade agreement, as far as you know it, Will it increase employment in the automobile industry?
3: I think it could, um, although it's not perfectly clear um, uh, because there are some positive effects and some potentially negative effects. So, so I would say I, I would expect uh, some moderate e- effect on the auto industry's uh, employment in the U.S.,
1: do you think, Professor Lawrence, that on the whole, this is a, uh, a sort of bent more toward free trade or more toward protectionism?
3: I think it's, it's, it's bent more towards uh, protection, but we've, we kind of have escaped a bullet because it's not um, – certainly NAFTA is, is, has now been renewed, and there were many people who were worried about that. Um, It has been improved in certain respects in the sense that things like the digital economy are now included, labor and environment are treated within the agreement. But I would say um, there's a lot of constraints, more constraints being placed on the auto industry. Uh, They've raised the amount of value added required to qualify for NAFTA. So there are a number of measures which are less free trade, if you will, but it's a but it, but it's not. I, I don't think it's a momentous change.
0: And the effect on U.S. farmers, for example, with the uh, Canadian dairy market.
3: Yes, well, there are slight improvements, but if you look at the numbers involved there, they're minuscule. So, so um, uh, again, it's kind of um, it's a change, but the amount of additional dairy that that we're going to be able to sell in Canada is going to be increased. Uh, but the quota is on the, you know, less than 10 percent more.
1: Professor Lawrence, I want to get your, your thoughts on what this new agreement does for the U.S.'s uh, path forward with China. Some people are saying it actually sets a precedent and gives some sort of view into President Trump's trade policy. Do you agree with that?
3: Well, I think it has elements that are aimed at China. Uh, you know, there's, a, there's quite a remarkable provision which says that if, if the Canadians try to, or the Mexicans, try to negotiate a free trade agreement with, with China now, the United States has the right to withdraw from NAFTA. In other words, we, he, um, they're, they're using this agreement as try to put leverage on China and to constrain its opportunities. Um, It's also uh, in Canada not very popular because it's uh, seen by some as an intrusion on Canadian sovereignty and their ability to conduct their trade policies. Um, By and large, it is sort of um, uh, closing the the U.S. market and the North American market somewhat uh, to Chinese who who might might have wanted to have sell more cars in the United States, something that they aren't doing much now but potentially in the future. Uh, but on the other hand, you know the um, the tariffs on uh, steel and aluminum remain in place, and um, that's going to make it less attractive for American auto uh, manufacturers to produce cars for the Chinese market. And then we also have the tariffs against our cars. Uh, the Chinese are lowering their tariffs in general in automobiles, but not against us. So I would say. Uh, On that front, um, unless we get rid of those tariffs with with China and and get out of that war, um, uh, we're actually, and that's where I think some of the negative effects of the NAFTA will come, uh, we're not encouraging uh, the the, um, auto firms to use the U.S. as a base for production for exports.
0: You're referring to that uh, section uh, 232, the tariff protections, correct? Correct.
3: Yes, we have tariffs on steel and aluminum in the name of national security. There's also the threat that in the future we could um, put additional tariffs on automobiles in the name of national security. Now, what the the, uh, Mexicans and Canadians have gotten out of this agreement is they are going to be side letters in which at least their current volumes aren't going to be subject to those tariffs.
1: Professor Lawrence, I'd love your thoughts just going forward about what this negotiation process has done to the political goodwill between the U.S. and Mexico and Canada.
3: Um, I think it's a it's a good question. I I think our in general our feelings of closeness to to, um, to the Canadian their their feelings of closeness to us I think are have been damaged as a result of this. I think, you know, they've got the sense that it is uh, it is America trying to put America first. Uh, but I think they're also heaving a sigh of relief that things aren't as bad as they could have been.
0: The t- The trade uh, pact that is uh, set to be voted on by Congress, do you believe it's a template for U.S. trade negotiations with China?
3: Not really, Um I think the kind of questions, the really tough questions uh, that we're going to face with China aren't really dealt with in this trade agreement. One dimension where I would, I would, um, I would say it's, it's kind of a template is that um, currency are the, were included in this agreement. And I think if we ever had an agreement with China, we'd, we'd want to cover currency and currency manipulation. So in that sense, we've done something. But the big problems with China that uh, relate to the protection of intellectual property and the forced transfer of technologies to China, and how do we deal with state-owned enterprises in China, those aren't really dealt with uh, in this agreement because they're not problems that we have with uh, with the Canadians or the Mexicans.
1: Professor Lawrence, just to sort of wrap up, one thing that's been on my mind is whether President Trump wants a trade agreement with China. And there was a news report out yesterday about rising tensions uh, in, in the South Seas uh, between Chinese warships and U.S. warships. How do you see this whole thing evolving, and, and sort of what's the compass?
3: I'm very worried about that. Um, I mean, I I think he he, he would like a trade agreement with China in which they totally surrender. And he's playing for that one. And absent that, by that I mean they agree to give up a lot of their industrial policies, which are the the core element of their development strategy. And I I don't see that as very likely. And I think that's ultimately what he would like to see happen, or certainly people who are advising him would like to see happen. And um, uh, so I believe that these tariffs are going to remain in place for a long time, um, unfortunately, and I think it's going to be damaging to, uh, to our trade, uh, to, to, our, uh, to, to our economy, and, and, and to the Chinese economy. Uh,
0: uh, Professor Lawrence, uh, just quickly, what, what have we learned as part of uh, the negotiating style of the U.S. trade representative vis-a-vis Mexico and Canada, and what can we take away from this example?
3: Well, I think both in this case and in the case of the Korea agreement, um, they, 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 use a, they, they wave a big stick. But when the time comes, uh, actually, uh, you know, President Trump had called this the NAFTA, the worst agreement, you know, he'd ever seen. But in fact, what he ultimately agreed to in the case of both the Korea uh, and this uh, new agreement with Canada and Mexico, yeah. is a is a modification.
1: Professor Robert Lawrence, thank you so much for being with us. We're gonna to have to leave it there. Uh, really illuminating and important conversation. The Albert uh, L. Williams Professor of Trade and Investment at John F. Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University, also a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics, as well as a former uh, member of the Council of Economic Advisers for President Clinton.
0: Just this week, we heard from the uh, president of the European Commission, Jean-Claude Juncker, saying we have to do everything to avoid a new Greece, this time an Italy crisis. Here to tell us about it is Ferdinando Giuliano. He is our Bloomberg Opinion Editor based in Rome, and he joins us now. Ferdinando, thank you very much for being with us. Maybe just spell out for people who have not been following the back and forth in Italian politics, who are the players and how did they get into so much trouble? So the
4: players are the two populist parties, the Five Star Movement and the League, which after the March the 4th election decided to team up and form these uh, uh coalition uh, of strange bedfellows because remember the two parties run against each other at the election uh, but then decided to form this anti-establishment government and their economic program which was published in mid May included spending commitments uh, which topped 100 billion euros according to independent estimates so that started freaking out the bond market and uh, you started seeing Italian bond yields going up uh, in uh, May, June. And then it's really been a roller coaster with the finance minister, a technocrat, Giovanni Tria, trying to reassure the markets that the deficit and the debt will be under, kept under control. Now, remember, Italy's public debt is one of the largest in the world, over 130% of gross domestic product. So investors are watching very closely. So on the one hand, we have the finance minister. and On the other hand, we have the leaders of the two parties really want to make good on their promises because they want to deliver change and bring growth. And at the moment, we are at a crunch point uh, because the uh, deficit targets for the next year and the forthcoming year need to be published. Well, they really had to be published last week, but will be published within hours or days. And investors are watching very closely to understand how... Uh, to what extent these parties will uh, really um, continue with their spending pledges and will put them into practice.
1: You know, it seemed like there was good news uh, overnight out of Italy, right? We had a a sort of announcement that there was a plan to reduce the deficit. The problem was it also came with increasing stimulus. And at first the markets thought, oh, this is good news. And then just based on where bond yields are, they came down a little bit. But I mean, they're not buying it. Does this make sense? to you their latest plan?
4: Well the plan at the moment is uh, as you said, you know, very hard to believe. Uh, today we had the finance minister saying he's targeting a 2.4% um, deficit for uh, next year. However, he also made clear that the deficit, the structural deficit, i.e. without any additional measure, would be 2% of GDP, and he wants to do uh, raise investment by another 0.2% of GDP. So that takes us already to 2.2% of GDP. Now, we have just that little margin, which is around 3.5 billion, to uh, uh, really make good on all these promises, lowering the pension age, a, some sort of income support scheme for the poor. Lower taxes, which these parties are throwing around. So it's at the moment it's very hard to square how you can keep the deficit under control, make good on your promises at a time when the Italian and European economies really seem to be slowing.
0: Ferdinando, the Commissioner for Economic Affairs, uh, Pierre Moscovici has uh, released part of a text of a speech that he gave at the OECD in Paris saying, quote, like the Hungarians, Italians also opted for a decidedly Eurosceptic and xenophobic government that, on migration and budgetary issues, is trying to get rid of European obligations. Do you, I mean, do you agree with that? Yeah.
4: Well, I've wrote, I wrote a column just yesterday which basically said that the European Commission should really avoid making this, <laughs> such such remarks using such, uh, such, you know, this kind of tone. And the reason is because actually uh, the two parties, the League and the Five Star Movement, are thriving on uh, this rhetoric from Brussels because it's very easy for them to just, you know, uh, portray these bureaucrats, uh, uh, European bureaucrats, as the really enemies of the Italian people, the people who are trying to stop uh, them from uh, uh, making good on all their uh, lavish promises. So I think you know a much better strategy for Europe would be to obviously apply the rules. I mean, there are some rules which say, say a high debt country should really try to bring this debt down during an upturn. And at the moment, we're not in a recession. The economy is growing, so that's the time to do it. But at the same time, really leave it to investors because investors are already nervous. They're watching this very closely and there would be a lot of pressure on the Italian government to uh, you know rein in these crazy sp- spending pledges so frankly i think these comments are not particularly helpful they only make um, the populists look stronger
1: yeah. uh,
4: far better to keep you know to stick to the rules apply the rules but let let the markets really do, do the job
1: Yeah, Ferdinando Giuliano, thank you so much for being with us. Ferdinando Giuliano is a Bloomberg Opinion editor in Rome, watching this drama unfold. Of course, uh, there have been an increasing number of comparisons between Italy and Greece, given the fact that their bond yields are now trading closer together than you're seeing with uh, Germany. And uh, I don't know, interesting times, interesting times. The New York Times reported a bombshell article about President Donald Trump's finances, basically saying he got a lot of his money from his dad, despite his claims that he was a self-made millionaire, billionaire, excuse me. Uh, Joining us now, Tim O'Brien, executive editor editor of Bloomberg Opinion. Also, um, the author of of the book, Trump Nation, The Art of Being the Donald. Also, he has been sued by Donald Trump and won. So uh, that's going to throw that out here. Tim, what did you make of this New York Times? piece what did we learn that was new?
5: Um well I think the main things in it that were new, Lisa, were the, the various structures his parents and his siblings invented to transfer as much of the parents' money to the kids without incurring inheritance or gift taxes, which was a lot. About a billion dollars went to the children. Under tax rules at the time when that happened, it should have been taxed at about a fifty-five percent rate. But because of various structures that the kids put in. Uh, it only got taxed at about five percent. So instead of paying over five hundred million dollars in taxes, they paid about a little bit over fifty.
1: So is any of this illegal, though?
5: A big portion of it's perfectly legal, um, including the, the you know the sort of conduits that they use to transfer the money. The piece of it that might be and is at least untoward and possibly illegal, is that they used bogus valuations on some of the assets that were being transferred, particularly buildings. They had an appraiser who appeared to have lowballed the valuations on lots and lots of these buildings. However, those valuations occurred, I think, well over a decade ago. And uh, the appraiser said, look, I don't have the paperwork anymore. And statutes of limitations have run. So I don't think that there's legal exposure here for the president. There may end up being a a civil penalty. There's no I I would be really I I would bet, you know, my own small wallet on the fact that there wouldn't be a criminal penalty. Um, I think the larger lesson from it, though, is it it does speak to how dependent Donald Trump has always been on his father uh, to get launched as a business person, to fend off bankruptcy as a business person and to just get repeated help getting past his myriad mistakes as a businessman.
0: Uh, Tim, uh, in addition to your book on Trump, I know that you've also written about uh, a book called The Lincoln Conspiracy, right? I have. Yeah. Is there any, the reason I bring that up is because that takes a wider view of the kind of tenor of the time between the end of the Civil War and the First World War. Can you describe, based on what we know and also the revelations today from the New York Times, which, as you just described, may or may not be brand new, what do you believe to be the tenor of the inner circle of President Donald Trump?
5: Well, I I think he's running a very chaotic administration. I think it it reflects uh, the Trump Organization, which was very chaotically run. It was essentially a cult of personality at the Trump Organization built around marketing him and his name. It wasn't a Fortune 500 company. It was a mom and pop boutique operation in Trump Tower that really served his needs. And he's essentially transferred that into the White House. Um, The White House is short on process. It's short on policy aspirations. It is long on public appearances and and emotional relationships with the Trump base. That works in a campaign. It doesn't work for running a a federal government that employs two million people. So
1: one thing that I'm struck by, President Trump did respond to the New York Times article slamming it for being boring and old news and saying that now 97 percent of all stories in the New York Times are negative on him and just because they're they're sort of sour on getting the election call wrong. And I guess that I'm wondering how much any of this matters when it comes to how different populations in America view President Trump and whether they support him or not.
5: Well, you know, it, it's, it's easy to sort of define his base as post-industrial, uh, workers, male workers, white workers, and in fact, um, affluent Republicans were also a core support group for the president. And he's delivered things that that cohort wanted. He delivered a, a, a massive tax cut. He has delivered deregulation. Um, he has populated the district courts. Um, those are things that's meaningful to that group of people. Um, the the blue collar workers who support them want jobs, supported him, want jobs. I am not convinced yet um, that they don't think he's going to fulfill that promise. But the clock is ticking on that. You, know, you can look at places like Indiana, where Trump and Pence made a big show of saving all those jobs at Carrier. And then months later, those jobs disappeared. Uh, uh, the, you know, there's fisher fishermen in the coasts of both Louisiana and, and Connecticut who have who are feel that they've been betrayed you see these interviews in the press where they thought the president was going to de- deliver job growth to them and they haven't seen it so i think job growth but that's going to be a longer term multi-year phenomenon right now i think his base really likes him
1: and, and the republicans uh, that are wealthy businessmen they don't care about this other stuff as much if the policies are what they like is that sort of the well the i mean i think of- i
5: think i think it, it would appear that that those are pocketbook voters and they see the government, both, both of those constituencies see the government for different reasons as obstructionist or in the way. They don't see a benefit from it. Trump speaks to both of those populations when he says government's the problem. Um, and uh, for affluent voters, they don't need government services as much. For blue collar voters, they need those services, but they don't know what they're missing. I'm going
0: to throw you a little bit of a curveball here, but because of the nature of the investigation by The New York Times, do you think that the president is sympathetic to another round of tax cuts?
5: Wow. I mean, I think I think the president is sympathetic to anything that makes him look like he's winning. And he defines that very broadly. Um, There are two things that motivate everything he does, uh, survival and uh, being self-aggrandizing. That's well, all you need to know.
0: All right. Thanks very much. Uh, Tim O'Brien is executive editor for Bloomberg Opinion. He is, of course, the author of Trump Nation, The Art of Being the Donald. It's also the author of The Lincoln Conspiracy.
1: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PNL Podcast.
0: You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer.